uh, I'll try to describe in some detail what I'm talking about. Obviously, some of it I'm going to be without intending to taking it for granted. Um, what I've been doing is taking this theme, uh, self-knowing, a quiet passion, and uh, it's just going to go until uh, I don't have any more to say on it. Um, and the way I've been doing it is building on what's gone before. So I w there'll be some repetition, uh, and then taking that, perhaps a slightly different twist, and then moving it so that there is some continuity. How many people here were at any of the talks on self-knowing? Okay. Very briefly, the uh, setting the stage for it gets more and more brief because uh, there are other things that have to be said. Uh, self-knowing uh, is can be used interchangeably with what is probably a more familiar term, self-knowledge. That is to know, know thyself. Uh, I don't use the word knowledge because it sounds like, and often is, an accumulation of thoughts about yourself. People fill up notebooks of their insights. It isn't that. Uh, because um, self-knowing in this sense, and notice it's a verb, is something that you continuously do. It's a way of living, really, uh, which means that you're awake to your life as you live your life out. And what you're knowing is the, the ways in which uh, the, the ways of the self is revealed in whatever happens between people, nature, events, things, whatever. Um, in that sense, it's not an accumulation. It's always fresh and new. Uh, the quiet passion is that it's... Uh, it leads you to a certain quiet mind. Probably most, if not all of you, are here because you value a quiet mind, at least from time to time, to enter into that. Um, as the practice matures more and more, you'll have access to, to a quietude that uh, exists, that's inherent, an innate part of human nature. It's not imported from anywhere. Uh, it's also quiet in that... Um, it's a passion, and when we think of passion, we think of something quite visible and dramatic and external. Uh, and this one isn't. Uh, and yet it takes a, a passion that's sustained over a lifetime, really, whenever you begin to do this, uh, that isn't visible to anyone else necessarily. It's an inner fire. And that fire is about learning. It's about... Um, removing obstacles to fulfillment, to happiness. Um, it's quiet because it's not necessarily matched by external behavior. Uh, just take a retreat. People are just sitting quietly and then walking quietly. And you might say, well, they don't look very passionate. But inside, there can be enormous passion. It has to do, uh, at least as I'm using the term, it has to do with learning. And it's a radical re-education. I would say what the Buddha is teaching is, is a radical re-education. It's a self-re-education. Essentially, you're re-educating yourself. There is help. There are some teachings. There are techniques and methods and encouragement 
there's a this place, it's, and there will always have been places. But the quality of learning that goes on comes from mindfulness. That's a key term. If you're new here, you'll hear that uh, again and again. And so it's this urgency for self-discovery, for learning, for unlearning what needs to be unlearned, uh, for replacing it what with what is beneficial for yourself and others. And that's essentially what it is. The only other distinction I'd like to make, uh, which I probably will have to make each time, and perhaps next time, I don't know if we'll get into it tonight. When we think of self-knowing or self-knowledge, in whatever way you think of it, and even the ways that I've mentioned, uh, we tend to think of it as about this personality, finding out about yourself, oh, I'm much more uh, frightened than I thought, or I didn't realize I had prejudice of that sort, or uh, in other words, we learn about our nature. But it's not our original nature in using Buddhist language, it's more uh, the person, what we call personality, the ways of the ego. And I'm not using ego in a detrimental way. I, I won't. I, I, to me it isn't. It's just a fact of life. It's there. Um, and so it's, it's the answer to the question, who am I? And I would say all, or at least the spiritual paths that I know of, are all one way or another in a, an attempt to answer that question, who am I? What is this? What's going on here? It's a radical attempt to question what existence is about, but not to answer it with words from some wise person, including the Buddha. It's a personal discovery of truth. It has to be personal discovery of truth. The other is someone else's discovery, helpful, can inspire you, can point us in a good direction. But finally, all of this is designed for your own uh, discovery, so that it is your own, and then it's a totally different thing. Uh, the main discovery, I think, at a certain point in practice, uh, is that the emphasis shifts from answers to who am I being, well, I'm a kind person, I'm sometimes not so kind, in other words, clarifying our biography, clarifying our personality, uh, it starts to change to whatever turns up, uh, the answer is it's sort of who I, the answer to the question who am I is uh, no answer is, is, uh, is satisfactory because you start to find um, the question becomes who I'm not and you're not any of these things. That is, all the things that emerge in the mind are fleeting. Any characterization, any verbalization, any notion, any picture, self-image, uh, our story keeps being revised and changed. Uh, if you start to really examine the mind, and I would say, unless you do it, what I'm saying may sound just stupid, uh, you begin to see uh, that its nature isn't quite what you thought it was, and that nothing or anything that comes up and represents itself as being this is who you are, you'll uh, more and more begin to see it's an object, it's a thought or it's a picture, or it's a characterization. And as such, it isn't you. It's like any other representation, like a photograph of yourself. It may be a beautiful photograph, but it isn't you. It's a representation. It's an objectification of something else. And as 
more and more you investigate, what becomes most interesting are not all of your personality quirks and strengths and weaknesses. That's ongoing. You know, you, that's, we can't miss that. But there's something that's, in a sense, prior to all that, that's deeper. And that's the treasure that the Buddha's teaching, and I would say all spiritual, authentic spiritual teaching is about. There's a treasure that's buried inside of us. So we don't have access to this treasure. And we walk around as if we are poverty-stricken. It feels as if we are. I'm talking about inner now, inner poverty. You can be very wealthy outwardly, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, spiritual practice, certainly Vipassana meditation, is to more and more untangle the entanglements and to go through all of that which is blocking our ability to see that all along we've had everything we need. Our nature is happiness. We've been trying to get happiness from someplace outside of ourselves, whether it be a career or a partner or objects or, you know, it's endless really. And I'm not saying that that's worthless or meaningless. It isn't. It's part of life. And some people are better at it. And practice can help you improve its wisdom in action. It's a certain level of wisdom so that our choices in life are more fruitful, more beneficial for ourselves and others. But that isn't it. Uh, the treasure is even deeper than that because the treasure is something that's innate. It's not improved, there's nothing to improve upon. Uh, and all practices to come to that, to taste it, and then to live from that place as much as possible. Um, so uh, our biography starts to take on a some almost humorous uh, place as you start to look at it, all the different characterizations as to who you are, if you, start, if you listen long enough. Now remember I said it's self-discovery and, and learning are a central part of all this. Learning, uh, your school learning comes to an end. For some of you who are still in school, have faith, it does come to an end. <laughs> but learning doesn't come to an end. It can be a lifelong activity. And that's the spirit in which this is about. It's not finally, oh, I see finally who I am, finished, give me a trophy or a certificate, and now let me go on to the next project. Massage or acupuncture. Or <laughs> it's an ongoing thing because life is an ongoing challenge. It never stops. Even the Buddha was fully awakened. If you read the story of his life, endless challenges. Okay, now what I'd like to do tonight, and some of you may be annoyed at this, but uh, I honestly feel it's uh, one very useful way to spend our time together is I want to talk a bit about uh, more than a bit as much as time will allow and then questions and answers um, about the way in which we are receiving what happened on 9-11 you might say oh no not that one again I've just started to feel more calm. Uh, the, the Attorney General has not said there's uh, credible evidence that there's going to be some at attack uh, over the weekend or some bridge is going to be blown up. We haven't had that and it's just a little bit of anthrax and uh, she was only nine, she was 94, you know, and, uh, she, she lived a full life. And our troops are just, aren't they great? They're just, uh, you know, so we feel more optimistic. 
And yet, uh, I've been talking to a lot of people since this happened. I, part of what I do is I, I talk and I listen. I hope I listen well. And during this time, it's been intensified, of course. And there's an ongoing um, concern for what's, what, what this is all about. Uh, it seems to have to, a lot to do with personal security, the fear of the quality of life that's going on here, uh, because at some level, and we're reminded of it periodically, uh, we know that this is not over, that uh, the possibilities of other uh, attacks are there. Economic security, we more and more read about people being laid off. Perhaps some of you have been laid off. And we see all kinds of indicators uh, that the uh, opulence and cushion that we once knew uh, seems to be shrinking, and there's fear about that. Sometimes people have a hard time talking about it, but um, I'm nosy, so I kind of weasel it out of them. And of course, fear of the uh, international what's going on in the world in terms of the war and so forth. Um, I'd like to read you a quote. I'm not going to explain it, but I'll finish up with it towards the end. Uh, I think I have already hinted at at it when I talked about the treasure. It's uh, by one of the great flowers of Islam named Rumi, R-U-M-I, many of you have heard of him, who was a great uh, a Sufi, a mystic, the inner teachings of uh, Islam. And it's called A Quiet Space. Let the landscape be covered with thorny crust. We have a soft garden in here. The continents blasted, cities and little towns, everything become a scorched, blackened ball. The news we hear is full of grief for that future, but the real news inside here is that there's no news at all. <laughs> okay, it may sound, it's actually quite logical and straightforward, but I'll straight, don't, don't puzzle over it. Um, I want to, um, what I'd like to talk about tonight is inner strength which we all need, and I, which I would encourage everyone to develop. And each person has to develop from it from the starting point of whatever is yours. Is, it? is the mic on? I don't know. I hope so. Okay, sorry. Yeah? Can you hear in the back? Yeah. What was I? Oh, yeah. I guess I need some. Yeah. Um, the world that we live in right now is really happening. It really is this way. I don't know if you, uh, the mind has a way of going in and out, but it's really and truly what happened on the 11th really happened. And what's going on right now is really going on. This is the world that we live in right now. It really is. You might sound, well, what's he hammering away at the obvious? Uh, because the Dharma practice, the Buddhist teachings, has everything to do with living a real life. And that means you have to learn how to live in the world that you live in, and not a fanciful one that has nothing to do with what's going on. And the mind doesn't like the way things are, typically, at least the people I talk to. 
do you like the way it is? Sometimes even we long that with all our problems before 9-11 seemed like a paradise lost compared to now where every day we hang on things. Um, what happened, I, I'd like to um, put it in a con- the context of the Buddhist teachings in a much more general, which go, which go beyond 9-11, which go back to the time of the Buddha, which go back to beginningless time, and which these issues uh, will never be out of fashion or out of, out of date. Um, one of the things that at least I learned, and I have a hunch that all, or at least most of you may have learned, is when that event happened, this explosion of hatred, incredible hatred uh, and violence. Uh, For me, one of the things that became very, very clear is that came out of the human heart, out of the human mind. Uh, Do you have any hatred left or are you all cleaned out? Do you have any resentments or angers? Apparently, there are some people who just have tremendous anger. Now, the Buddhist teaching talks about the kilesas. Some of you are in the more the Tibetan traditions, glaciers, same thing, Sanskrit. It's sometimes called greed, hatred, and delusion, or, or craving, aversion, and confusion. Uh, those three, sometimes called poisons or toxins, uh, are poisons of the mind. They're afflictions, emotional afflictions. Dharma practice is to root them out. Uh, the whole point of vipassana practice at any rate is to begin to get to know them to get to see their nature and in the seeing of their nature as we see more deeply into them it's possible to start to weaken them and even let them go Um, many of us live our life when we hear about this uh, we know it's it's true you know we know to some degree it's about us but we don't realize how dangerous it is. Uh, We're looking for danger more outside. We don't realize that there's a real danger in our own mind. Now this came from other people's minds, but we're all doing it to each other. We all, there's only one mind. We are the world. Okay, that was an extreme uh, contribution on the 11th, but it came out of a human heart and a human mind, a bunch of them. Came from somewhere. and so it's, uh, it can be, in, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings, whatever happens, you may see it, it may be external, but there's uh, more and more you reflect on, uh, because this is about self-knowing, about getting to know yourself, am I free of that? Do I still have hatred? Because if you're critical of the outside world, of conflict, of aggression, of violence, as many of us are, uh, are you, the world is the way it is because we're the way we are. We've all, we're all making up this world. It didn't drop from the sky. It's our world. Not me, I'm a good person, I don't kill, I, don't, I wouldn't blow something up. Yet in our own ways, with ourselves or with others in our life, uh, these kalesas are alive and well. Uh, there are different attitudes towards it. How do you relate to them? Uh, in my, I stayed with Ajahn Mahabhu in the Thai uh, in Thailand. He has a, a forest monastery. He's a very famous forest master. So Michael and Ryan have spent time with him as well. And he's tough. He's U.S. Marine Corps style. 
and his attitude towards the Kalesas is take no prisoners. That's, he sounds like he comes right off CNN. Uh, and he's, so he's constantly talking about uh, cut the head off the, the Kalesas, the Kalesas are going to bite you, burn you, and, all, and at a certain point you feel like, all right, all right already. Thich Han, who I also spend some time with, he has a different way of going about it. It's sort of love the Kalesas, you know, hug them while you're breathing, fondle them. They're both, that uh, doesn't, uh, Mahabua is trying to, uh, after all, he's not about uh, really hating them, because that's just more aversion, it's more of the same. But what he's trying to do is wake us up. He was trying to wake us up as to the fact that if you don't understand your mind, then your mind is going to take you into ac- courses of action that are not going to be satisfactory for you. They're going to cause pain for you and for those in your life, and then you're going to scratch your head. And it's coming from inside. And so self-knowing is not a luxury. In fact, this may be my bias. No doubt it is. Uh, there's no energy shortage in the world, really. What there's a shortage is a shortage of understanding. Uh, on an individual level, societies, we don't understand. We all want happiness. All the religions endlessly talk about peace and love, and we're all preparing for war. No one loves war, but we're at it again and again and again. Something's off. There's something we don't seem to understand, some lesson we're not learning. So it's quite important. Thich Nhat Hanh's way, uh, I prefer it actually, you know, it's, it's softer, but both of them are designed to not feed these kalesas, to recognize them, to see their impermanent and empty nature and to let them, they kind of wither away on their own in the light of mindfulness, in the light of attention. When awareness gets strong, it just burns them all up. The treasure that was hinted at, and I give the story away, that, that's what Rumi's talking about, is that treasure. In that place, there's no 9-11. Okay, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, things never go the way I plan them, but do they go the way you plan them? <laughs> or is, this talk will just be a hodgepodge of whatever comes out. Um, so that's one thing to be learned that could be learned from it is to have a, it's a kind of humbling when you realize that there could be that much hatred in the world. There's a, a sutra that goes, it's not new. The weapons are new, but that this quality of mind seems to never go out of style. At the time of the Buddha, there's a sutra called the Fire Sermon. I invite you to read it. It's not all that long. Essentially, what the Buddha is saying is, the whole world is on fire. He wasn't just being poetic. He was trying to say it's on fire with greed, with hatred, with confusion. The human mind, if you don't understand it, your mind, my mind, the degree to which we don't, then to some degree, that's what's going on. Now, some of us are fortunate. We've been brought up, we perhaps were born well-endowed. We have loving parents. We have uh, a lot of things going for us. We've been well brought up. And we have less of that uh, really deep negative karma to work off, let's call it that at the moment, or these tendencies. But all of us have some. No one just uh, is born perfect. Even the Buddha wasn't. There's work to be done. And so whether you call it training or self-understanding, I prefer that. Uh, coming to know yourself must include 
coming to know those qualities in you which perhaps you don't approve of. And it's one of the reasons why the art of observation uh, is something that's not so easy to learn because we don't always like what we see. We don't want to see it. Because if you practice the way this practice is designed to be carried out, uh, it's choiceless. That means whatever turns up, the Buddha had mastered come what may seeing. That it's, it's a kind of an unwavering quality to be uh, develop an attitude where you're really interested in what's happening, what your experience is, whether it's you like it or you don't. Now that isn't the natural bent of the mind. The natural bent of the mind is to prefer some fanciful future or some uh, remembered past. Okay, so uh, some of what uh, came out of that, at least for me, was uh, <coughs> it revived my sense of um, the mind is a <coughs> the, the Buddhism is a if you want to call it, it's a religion of, of mind. It's all it's saying that. All the uh, torment and nightmare and horror of human life come out of the mind, and all the wonder and joy and love and the extraordinary, magnificent things that we humans are capable that also comes out of the mind. You've got Mother Teresa, and you've got uh, Adolf Hitler, etc. We have both in us, probably. Okay, and so uh, the Buddhist teaching is let's look at where this is all coming from. It's not going to drop from the sky, and you can be all fixed. You can pray for yourself to not be a greedy or a hateful person. Uh, do you think that alone will work? <clears throat> to some degree it may, if the level of prayer has such sincerity and depth and intensity and is carried out over time, that in effect it, uh, it burns through all this stuff and connects you to a place that's deeper, the place that Rumi's talking about. But at least the emphasis in Buddhism is on uh, we're responsible for our own happiness or lack of it. Okay. Um, another thing that, of course, we saw was the impermanence and uncertainty of life. Uh, as I speak of these things, uh, please understand that the theme is self-understanding. And... Uh, what I'm interested in is probably since the 11th or 9-11, uh, you've gone through uh, an enormous range of reactions. Uh, I have. It's, uh, sometimes when you watch CNN or you don't watch CNN or this kind of news or that kind of news or hearing this or you have to travel there or, uh, you know, there's a lot of reactions that we've had. Um, so practice is designed to meet those. And I'm pushing a little. I'm trying to say, whatever this 9-11 is about, it's about us. If you're, a, if you're a yogi, it means you have to live in the same world as everyone else, but you're also committed to, to getting free. And from the point of view of a Vipassana yogi, the world exists in order to set us free. That may sound weird. Look, life is here to be lived, obviously. That's the most obvious thing I can think of. Love your children, do good at your job, study what you're studying. That doesn't stop. <clears throat> but there's an added twist in Dharma practice. And that twist is, in addition to whatever else you're doing, they confuse it. It isn't really two things. It needn't be, although at first it will seem that way. Whatever it is that's happening can also be used to free you, to liberate you. But it's 
only possible if you relate to it in a rather distinctive and unique way. That means you're aware of the impact of what's happening on you. Okay, I think that'll become clearer to those of you who are rather new to this as we go on. Uh, <clears throat> to learn that everything is impermanent and that it's uncertain. Didn't we already know that? Uh, how could you not know that things are impermanent and that they're uncertain? And Buddhist teachers repeat that again and again. If you hear it, he if you come here, it's probably coming out of your ears. We're always saying it. It's on tapes and in books. And, okay. and we nod our head and great, and then we go on living as if it's not true. We, we have created a structure, inner and outer, that had appeared to be really stable. That won't change on us, They're like the stage set is okay. And from a profound point of view, uh, uh, <clears throat> the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon is not anything new. It's, uh, it's dramatic. And at least for many people, it was a wake-up call. It was shock therapy. What we learned was uh, we don't, we're not in control. We don't own the world. None of us do. We never did. That's part of self-deception. We think that it's controllable. You know, to some degree, you can live in certain ways and manage things. It's not completely out of our control. But uh, we never thought this could happen. The World Trade Center if you've seen it, you know it's powerful. To me it was. The two towers. seems like it's built for hundreds of years. And where is it now? It's not here anymore. It's gone. Okay. So, that without Buddha Dharma, people learn something about life. But if you're, if you're practicing Buddha Dharma, the Buddha is always trying to help you be sensitive to that. Many of you, or some of you have We've been in the practice group on learning how to live, learning how to die, which we've been having during this time. It's been quite interesting. Normally, I'll have, uh, we'll start off with the five reflections that the Buddha uh, left for us. They're reflections on all of us much, must age, uh, grow ill, we must die, we must uh, let go of everything that's dear to us and so forth. And they're Reflections. You kind of take these thoughts up and reflect on the fact that you're not exempt from this lawfulness. Everyone who's born must die. There's no exemption. It's not negotiable. And I, I'm not exempt from it. And you'll get teachings like, and for me it was true, when my parents, both parents died, uh, that was the last gift that they left for me. You know, how could my mother or father die? They brought me into this world, but there they were, dead. And their message was, Sorry, son, but uh, soon it will be your turn. It's not to, to bring you down so much, because there's a point to it. It's not to, if you're saddened or having a hard time, not just with the events of the last two months, but personally, life goes on. Love affairs break up, businesses fall apart, we get rejected, we get accepted, we love, we hate. That hasn't stopped. It's, life goes on. Uh, this is not designed to make it worse for you, quite the contrary. Uh, so what these teachings and many others, they're in, the, in all the different traditions, there are a lot of ways to help wake us up. We didn't need to use those in our practice group this year because they were 
they were like cardboard compared to what really happened on nine. Why do you have to reflect that everything that arises must pass away? Everyone in the practice group we met on Mon Mondays, I think, it would just be silly. It would like be teaching people who know the alphabet and how to count uh, to begin with that. It was so vivid for everyone. Now it's perhaps fading again. I don't know. You have to answer that. That's part of self-knowing. What is your relationship to change? See, a commitment, the passion is of learning how you actually live. How do I actually live? And not sitting down and puzzling it out uh, with your thinking mind, because that won't really be so reliable. It's that as you live, to be sensitive, you can see how you actually live. All you have to do is pay attention. You can see your relationship to change. You can see your relationship to nature. You can see your relationship to food, to things, to money, to sex to other people. It's all being mirrored back to you by your reactions. Life is constantly showing you how you're living, but you can't see it unless you're interested. Okay, The freedom comes from that. Freedom comes from that. Um, so that some of what can come out of this uh, can be uh, quite consistent with what you might be learning uh, in Dharma practice anyway. Now, why would the Buddha load us down with these uh, reflections that are so dreary and morbid? Uh, it's because the truth is that life is that way. Anything that's constructed, that's put together, is of the nature to be assembled uh, is also of the nature to be disassembled. Anything that that arises, and what do Buddhas know that we don't know? They know that everything that arises passes away and is empty. <coughs> empty, empty of an enduring core, autonomous, independent core. The World Trade Center isn't. We can see that. What the Buddha is saying is nothing is. This, you, some of you know this, this was my apartment. I like to use this one. You're probably getting bored with me, but it, uh, this was my apartment for, for um, about 13 years, 14 years, and it served me well. I was a wanderer, kind of homeless, not you know, uh, just going from retreat to retreat. Uh, and then it was really nice to finally have a home after a number of years of that, right here. And uh, then I got kicked out because. The center needed to expand. Our meditation hall was tiny for the number of people who were coming. Uh, it was good luck for me because now I live down the street and can be just live a, a normal life, not in, living in a fishbowl. Uh, and then I came back and saw it. Uh, a week or ten days or so before it was ready. It was just about ready. And there was nothing here that I could grasp. There was nothing familiar, not one thing. And my mind got disoriented. It just was, there was a period of, uh, I, what's going on? Because I walked up the stairs and this is what I found, just exactly where you, where you are. And <clears throat> that was the kitchen and that was, you know, the study, the living room and so forth. TV was over there, etc. Okay. Now, <clears throat> that isn't saying that the apartment was, it's empty in Buddhist terms, shunya. It's not saying it's worthless or that it was a complete hallucination. What it's saying is, it had a temporary existence. To some degree, its meaning and existence was imputed to it by me. 
it couldn't have that existence unless I gave it to it. But it was there, and it was useful. It's not that the, because something's impermanent and empty that it's worthless. Not at all. It's like you check into a nice hotel only for three days and then you move on, but it's nice during those three days. Oh, I'm not going to check into these hotels. You've got to move on anyway. <laughs> you know, they have good service, but then I'll get spoiled and I can't, then I have to leave. They throw me out. I've got to serve myself. Uh, the World Trade Center really existed. It served a, a purpose. And now it doesn't. This apartment isn't here anymore. But it was here. Now, let's, let's move in closer. Your mind. Because what the Buddha is saying is, Please get your priorities straight. And of course, uh, in, in reflecting on the impermanent and uncertain nature of life, uh, certain obvious benefits can come. They don't, they don't come automatically. Some seem to come out, but it's also necessary, it seems, for us to recognize it and to help it along. One is our priorities can get reordered. Uh, the, uh, the people in our lives can become much more precious. We already love them, but we love them even more when we realize we don't have forever to be together. What are we playing all these silly games with each other, pretending this and pretending that? Uh, we have each other for a certain amount of time. That's it. Uh, but of course, the main reorientation of values, because it came from the Buddha, was to get you to see that if you're putting all your hope into forms that Whose, whose nature is such that they must arise and pass away, how could you not suffer? It's inevitable. There is a, that we invest into forms. We, we seek for security, fulfillment, happiness in forms that can't provide us that. Again, let's not throw everything out. Take relationship. Or as one Jewish comedian used to say, please take it. But anyway, it's a bad you know, it's, <laughs> it used to be, take my wife, and then the, the community would say, yeah, please take her, you know, uh, sorry, I'm, you know, I'm an old fogey, what can I do? Um, it's not saying to not have relationships, to not uh, have a love relationship. Uh, don't have children, don't fall in love, don't marry, don't have a partner, because what are they going to do? They'll disappoint you, or, or even if you love them and they love you, they're going to die on you. What's the point? It's not saying that. What it is saying is, is that we load too much on the other person. We want them to fulfill everything that has not been fulfilled in our life. They can't do it no matter how much they love you, how wonderful they are, and, it, and then they're doing it to us too. How can that work? So don't look for that there. Uh, be more understanding of flaws, of change, of, of imperfections, of the humanness of it all. Well, is there any place that's safe to go? And what the teachings are saying is, there is a place that's stronger than, any, than anything that can happen to you. Do you believe that? Or does it sound like baloney? You know, oh, here we go, another new age, you know, uh, scam. But that's actually what's being said, whether you believe it or not. You, of course, you don't have to believe it. 
But believing it or not believing it is not really relevant. You're entitled to your belief, I can believe it as well. Because the whole thrust of the Buddhist teaching is to find out, is to test it. It's not just faith, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, in terms of power, uh, inner strength. So, if you could approach relationship knowing how human we all are, how fragile we all are, how imperfect we all are, then, uh, and also, of course, that's what makes the Buddhist teaching the Buddhist teaching, is there is some place inside of us that has that kind of fulfillment. Now, does that mean, well, I can just go in here and the heck with my husband or wife or my children because this place won't ever let me down. Uh, the real news inside here is there's no news at all. Okay. It doesn't mean that. Uh, if you can tap a certain richness and it isn't so, some of you may think, oh yeah, that's all right for him, he's like a professional, that's all he does. And he just sits and walks and sits, and he doesn't even go to the bathroom, he's just always sitting and walking. I have a life just like you. What I'm saying is ordinary people like ourselves have access to this place. It's not, on, it's not beyond the moon or beyond somewhere in the Himalayas. It's much closer, it's right where you are, right at this moment. It's just... Uh, uh, gently, quietly, and that's why the pet, you have to start disentangling yourself from everything that you've been preoccupied with uh, and start to feel what's already there. Okay, now, as you start to tap that, even a little bit, in my experience, and I'm not saying I'm some big enlightened guy who lives there, I'm not saying that, but obviously I've had a glimpse of what I'm talking about or I'd be a complete idiot to be s speaking this way. Well, maybe I could anyway, you know. <laughs> I can fool you, you know, just, what do you know? <laughs> um, when you tap this riches, to use an ancient metaphor that comes from India, uh, instead of behaving like a beggar, because if you honestly feel that there is no, there isn't much inside of you, and so you're going around with a beggar's bowl, please, looking into everyone's eyes, tell me, am I handsome? Brilliant, I am? Great, I like you. I'm not beautiful, a kind person, a good person, you don't like me? We're, we're or this person, oh great, let's get married. This person will fill up my bowl. Okay, uh, you don't need to do, so they're saying, you have to go, for, it's a beggar who doesn't realize that there's a treasure buried at home. You're going out begging for confirmation from others. Uh, not knowing that you have money, let's say. Not knowing that you have, you're a multi-billionaire and it's all at home, but you don't know you have it. It's already deposited in your account in Switzerland. All you need, all you need to do is find out the number and go and get it. It's waiting for you. No, no, no problem. Okay. So as you start to become less of a beggar and more of a king or a queen, this is the image that's used, then your relationship to other people and things changes. It doesn't mean you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't love or even want someone else's love. But it doesn't have that driven, uh, obsessive, uh, desperate quality to it. Uh, that, uh, if that's foreign to you, I apologize. And it's a, but it seems to be something that all of us understand. It's not reserved to adolescence when it's so obvious. You know, after your first love and then she rejects you. 
Sandy Silverman rejected me. <laughs> I was ready to jump, jump off the Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> for one day. <laughs> then I started in with someone else, you know. Okay. Um, so, reflection on the instability of the world, or the ungovernability of the world, or the emptiness of the world, they're all slightly different ways of saying the same thing using the Buddha's perspective. It's not to become cynical or pessimistic or uh, world-denying or ascetic and like that, that's all unreal and I just sit for every waking hour, eat one meal a day, uh, be celibate. That can be one thing. That can work for some people and be actually quite magnificent. It can also not work. I've seen both. Probably you have too. Um, what is being suggested is that you have within your own power, the power of practice, uh, this can awaken us to the fact that we're, uh, to change our relationship, to see the way things really are. What they, the way they really are is that they arise and they pass away. They don't last forever. That doesn't mean they're worthless. I have to repeat that because sometimes people grab onto it and if you're depressed, you want to hear that. Oh, so it's not just me. It's just life sucks. I'm not saying that. Not at all. Life is magnificent and precious, especially if you allow yourself to really taste it and live it. And that's what this is about. Uh, so those are some of the benefits. The ungovernability is a big one, I sense, for us Americans. Uh, we, we, this one uh, spun out of control, and we still don't know where it's going. It's quieted down. Every week seems to have a new theme, you know, and largely because the media needs, you know, some new something to drum at you day in and out. Uh, for it was anthrax, then it became smallpox, then it became nuclear. That's kind of died down a little bit, except now and then there, more than now and then, there'll be some retired general who's telling you about it, or some retired UN inspector, and you know, and they you get paranoid again and. And, but the, the point is, it is a reality. Sorry. This is the world that we live in. Uh, I don't know if this is an aside or part of the talk, but it, here it is. Uh, I roared with laughter. I was watching CNN uh, just before coming here. And the news was on. What do you call that? Underthoughts? What do you call that <laughs> stuff? What is, you know, that, while you're, you're listening, what? It's not, you know, it's, it's like a, what? Crawl. That's right. You know, they, someone, crawl. It's because crawling, okay. You know, messages, you know, President Bush says I love the Marines, you know, okay. You know, like, okay. Uh, the tar Taliban say that we're uh, winning the war. Okay, okay. And someone has fallen asleep because they don't change him sometimes. They repeat themselves day in and day out. Hey, that was like, you know, that was like Monday. It's, it's, of last week. I mean, we, that's already, but as there it is, one after the other. So I'm trying to watch something was actually quite, it was about the women of, of Afghanistan. It was quite intriguing. It was really moving. They were telling you how they felt, you know, about five years of being in that condition. And meantime, blah, 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 you know, and I'm really trying to, blah, 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 and somehow I couldn't, my mind would go, and I realized, oh, I get it. This is just the way the mind is. <laughs> The reason they made it up is that they had, they're comfortable with this. Their mind is like this all the time. You know, 
they see a tree. <laughs> you know, they're they're uh, making love with someone. <laughs> you know, uh, and there's nothing new about this. You know, it's just uh, business as usual, crawling along. Okay, now what the Buddha is saying is, if you want to really hear what these Afghani women have to say, uh, the mind, in fact, really f hear it. There's a, 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 again a Chinese saying which says, when the mind is quiet, the heart can listen. It's the whole practice in that little simple statement. Uh, when the, that's part of what, when the mind is quiet, you can really listen. The heart can listen. It's, a, it, it's not with the ears. The ears are the least. The, the listening is with the whole being. And there's much more to our being than we are in touch with. Okay, so when that crawling stops, then you can really relate. But that's also true of how we are with each other. Uh, when this incessant chatter and interpretation and images and reactions and judgments and fears and uh, reassurances, uh, you know, the, the, it's the crawl is going in on our own brain. Okay. Um, oh, we're getting to the last roundup. I've got to speed it up a little. Inner strength. Okay, if you're a meditator and if you walk into this building, I assume you are. And those of you who are really new, maybe you're trying to figure out whether this is for you or not, and that's, of course, sensible. So if I'm way ahead of you, I apologize. But I'm assuming that many of you who I've seen quite a that you are yogis, you are meditators. To some degree in your life, you care about this, and you're doing work on yourself. Now, what I've discovered in talking to really quite a few people during these last two months is that one of the things that happens is at the very time that we need to practice most, the, we, we don't. And so this is, was such a bomb that dropped on all of us that uh, either people are drowning in it, uh, and one of the things that it clearly seems to have done and is doing, disturbing sleep patterns, giving us negative dreams, um, unearthing other fears and wounds that are not about 9-11, but that have been sort of buried under a rock for maybe a hundred years, not that long. Uh, and this kind of blows the whole thing and suddenly you're feeling a certain pain and insecurity uh, and uh, a terror of, of uncertainty uh, that this clearly uh, anyone with a Hussein would, of course, understand that this is put into question. What next? Where is this going? Okay. And so, at that point, it seems like I'm generalizing, of course. If it applies to, to you, then use it. If not, let it go. Uh, one thing that people do is get lost in the content of what's going on here. I'm not saying to deny it. That's the other option. People just can't stand it and will do anything, not, don't want to know about it, uh, don't want to watch CNN. Some people are, that's all they're doing is watching CNN and wondering why they feel awful. You have to ration it a little bit. It's too much. How much can you watch of that stuff? You know, check in from time to time. I like to know about the world I live in. I want to be informed. But um, some people are, it's becoming almost like an addiction, reading about it, watching it, talking about it. Less and less, I think. But 
in a certain way, the, the, the thread has not changed. It's, it's here. It's just now it's more um, in abeyance or it's in the background a little bit more. It seems so. We, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe the whole thing will fall apart. There'll be no terrorist threat and we'll just go back to partying again. I don't know. But it doesn't look like that. It looks like there's more to go. And the president constantly is reminding us that. And, yeah, here's another one. I don't know if it's part of the talk or not. I think it is. Uh, I, I find it hilarious when I keep being told, you've got you've to live your life normally, even though we just told you you might get poisoned, blown to bits. or you know, <laughs> You've got to live your life normally, because if you don't, then you've de been defeated by the terrorists. Whereas if you, uh, what, go to the mall, just sp go to the mall, fly, anything, but just spend money on, I don't care what it is, but buy something for God's sakes. <laughs> a book, a pair of sneakers, anything, you know, and that means you're a patriot. Because otherwise the terrorists have won. What is this, a sporting event? I mean, you know, like, I don't see this as winning or losing. I mean, I want to appreciate my life whether the terrorists are there or they're not there. I've been trying to do that long before I ever heard of whatever his name is with the towel wrapped around. I've, you know, I've been trying to do that. Uh, so now I have, now it has to become like, what, the, the Rose Bowl? You know, or some championship match? They're not going to defeat me. I'm trying to live my life. I'm, not, I'm also not going to win. I'm not victorious over them. Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, so get simple. Uh, if it gets too chaotic, and I know, you know, the mind can become so noisy and wild and agitated. Uh, see if you can find a little bit of quiet in the midst of it. It's there. It's like in the eye of a storm. It's the beginnings of this place that Rumi's talking about. It's there. It's there right now. It's here with us. Don't freak. Don't panic. If you want to turn to the breath for a while or do some metta or take a walk in the woods. But you can find your way back to that place of there's some some quiet in the midst of all this that's going on, it's always there. It never goes away. See if it's true. But you won't find it if you get caught up in all the stuff. So one extreme is getting lost, another is uh, denial. And then let's say the, the way of the yogi, of course, is to face it, to face our experience. Uh, and that's what, obviously what I'm suggesting we do. Is it difficult? Of course, it can be. And whatever level of practice you have, use it. Now, I do want, if you don't mind, I'm going to go a little bit longer, a few minutes longer. Um, I'll stay as long as you have questions or until I keel over or something. Uh, but I, I, I do want to um, finish this up in a certain way. What is being suggested is that uh, What's going on is really going on. And in addition to living your life, you can actually, your practice can flower. Because a crisis unearths uh, a lot. And you have an opportunity to, to learn a lot about yourself. If you're willing to look. And if you're willing to not get discouraged by being falling off the horse again and again and again. Uh, start learning about your relationship <coughs> to fear. Some people have invented a future that's a nightmare. We don't know what the future is. 
and you're already there. They may as well drop a bomb on us because it's already in your mind. You've dropped it on yourself. There's some people who just again and again uh, see that, learn about that, see, well, what kind of, is this an adequate response to the challenge? Is it helping me? Of course not. Is it helping the people in my life? No. You know, we're just adding to, to the problem. And sometimes in seeing that, uh, we take the power out of the incredible imaginings that the mind is capable of, invent the inventions of what the future is going to be. Now, it's not a bright future because of everything that's happened. I'm not saying, uh, oh, you should just love what's happening. We're just heading for the rainbow. Uh, I, I don't know. And I don't know if anyone here does. So, but there's no need to invent a world that isn't there. Come back to the world that is here. And that world may not be the world you want right now, but it's the one you live in. And this is, always, this is just straight Buddhist teaching. The hardest thing to learn about Vipassana meditation and Zen and Dzogchen and all of it is to pay attention to your actual experience, what is happening right here and right now. The mind has had so much practice and is so passionate about a future that's not here or a past that's over with. And now and then as tourists we drop into the present moment. And practice is about seeing what that is all about. The past is gone. The future isn't here. All that we have is now. Can we learn to live in that now? There's immense significance in the present moment. It's bottomless. It has no, it has infinite depth, this present moment. Just whatever it is, the ordinariness of it all. As you penetrate what is, or just this, just the way it is, it goes somewhere. The treasure is there, that quiet place where there's no news. The news is there's no news. That sounds pretty negative. We'll correct Rumi in a moment. We'll improve upon Rumi. Only turned, he's only one of the great mystics who ever lived. But what did he know? He wasn't from Brooklyn. Anyway. <laughs> um, this is a time to, to practice. Um, then you might say, well, isn't that a form of evasion? Uh, you know, it's sort of like get out of the line of fire, just go to retreats and sit every day. Uh, in the meantime, the world, there are people suffering out there in our society and uh, certainly what's going on in Afghanistan <coughs> and all over. It's not fun. And are you, what are you saying? High class uh, evasion. Just meditate. Uh, it's true that coming to that, what does he call it? Uh, a soft garden in here. Not a bad image, nice. Um, that is a temporary with stepping out of the fire. It's a temporary getting in the, uh, taking advantage of the shade in a sunny day. It's getting out of harm's way. Maybe you're, it's only 45 minutes, maybe it's just a half an hour. But the important point is that it, to keep that strong, because if you can start spending some time there, it equips you when you re-enter the world, which is just the way it is, you have a much better chance of behaving in an adequate way. Some of you will be political activists, or maybe already are, and you're very much against uh, this course of action, against military intervention and bombing. Some of you think it's, it's great. Some of you are confused. You don't know what's right. Some of you, whatever you're, it's not, it's, I, I've gotten a few phone calls and emails from magazines. What do Buddhists think about what's happening? 
and I never get involved. I just say, like, how do I know? <laughs> you know, it turns out there are no Buddhists. You know, there are people. You know, and like, ask them. You know, what do, you, do we all, we as Buddhists feel what uh, millions of people all around the world suddenly chant out the same answer. <laughs> Buddhists in Korea, Japan, everywhere. No, it doesn't, it doesn't quite go that way. There may be Buddhist teachings, but we finally, we're people. We're people and we have a reaction to what's going on. Get to know that reaction. Uh, and... So it's, that's the sitting part of the practice. That's the retreats part of the practice. I wouldn't slacken off. Uh, it's, it may turn out to be the best thing you can do during a time of crisis. Because of course you re-enter. But now you're a bit more fit to meet the challenges of, of life, whatever those challenges are. If the mind is not quiet, it's coming from reactivity all the time. It's coming from reactivity, which is just old conditioning that hasn't served us so well, or we wouldn't be in this room tonight. When we tap that place of quietude, there's the possibility of an adequate response, not a reaction. It's not mechanical. From that quietude, that's why it's important for the heart to listen. Because when you really listen, then you know what to say. You know what to do. You have a much, Because that silent mind... We'll call it that for the moment. No news. That sounds like a vacuity or something. Maybe it's not a good translation. That silence is highly charged with life. And it's, and part of what I, what I, I have to use words, they're inadequate. Uh, there's intelligence and compassion and energy that's there, that's well beyond what you have right now, whatever your level is. It's, it's in, the, in other words, you have a, a, re, a boundless reservoir of human qualities, a kind of organic intelligence that's available. It's just not tapped. Everyone has it. There isn't anyone in this room who doesn't have it. It's, if you were born of a mother, you have it. It's there. Now, if you can tap that at whatever degree you can, then, of course, how you behave in the world uh, has a better chance of being wiser, it has a better chance of being uh, more loving, kinder, and so forth, of uh, your choices being better, your decision, because we may be called to make strong choices. I'm starting to hear murmurings of the draft. Should we draft men and women? I was waiting for that to happen. I had one period of sadness. I've had more, but I, I was walking uh, through the commons uh, about a week after this all happened, and I saw a bunch of young kids playing, you know, with purple and orange hair and 15 different rings coming out of every orifice and, uh, you know, sh uh, different shoes and different... And I looked, and I could hear a voice, it's kind of a Brooklyn voice, which is saying, kiddo, you know, uh, enjoy that purple hair because soon it's going to be a crew cut. Because I saw... You know, at some point, if this keeps going on, the draft will come back. Having put in two years in the military, I have a little bit of a sense of what you go through. It's not something that anyone should go through unless they really want to. Uh, and who knows what what's going to happen. There may be an issue. Should we attack uh, Iraq or shouldn't we? And the country may get divided. We don't know where this is going. We really and truly don't. You can already begin to see cleavages in the newspapers and among people. And so, you as an individual, to help you take care of your own, all the people in your life, it starts by taking care of yourself. Whether it's your children, 
or whoever, your work, how can you be any more useful than you are to yourself? If you are not clear, that's what you bring to whatever you do. So, uh, I'm going to read this poem again. Let the landscape be covered. Wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. I have to, I have, what is it, bully pulpit? (laughs) I have a few more minutes. In the Buddhist teaching is something called the five balas, the five powers. The first one, I'm going to go through them quickly, but I think you'll get it, because that's all we've been talking about. The first, first one has to do with conviction. It's sometimes called faith. It's sometimes called confidence. Uh, classically what it means is you have conviction or faith or trust or confidence in the teachings of the Buddha. You understand there was a real person who also suffered like us and through a deep inner seeing became free and left us teachings and methods that have been passed on to thousands of years in Asia and now it's here. However you get that. Now if you're very new to the practice you might not have that. But maybe you have conviction because some, however you got it, you see the urgency of self-understanding. That if you don't understand yourself, you're going to pay for it. Confusion is not a virtue. And so the energy will come from that. The, the other one is perseverance. <coughs> Granted, you have some, at least to give it a try, that uh, awareness, meditation, whatever, it has, you have some faith that it may help you. And then, in order for it to help you, that's, that's the beginning, but then you have to have some, you have to persevere. You have to bring some energy to it. You can call it uh, exertion or right effort, so that the energy is being applied to the awareness. And then there's concentration, where there's a steadiness of the awareness, there's mindfulness. These are all powers of the mind. They become stronger and stronger through practice. Mindfulness is that which uh, is it lands on things, it tells you what's happening. And then what grows out of that is insight. And so, let's say fear comes up. Just This example will hold for whatever it is. Fear comes up because of something, you're watching CNN, and this is a very good meditation. Uh, I, it, uh, I invented it out of necessity for myself and for others. Watch CNN and, uh, and you'll see that it pushes buttons at least sometimes, someone will say something and you can feel, oh my God, you feel that. Just when you sit on the couch, decide that this is going to be a period of meditation and that CNN is your, medit- is your live-in master that's telling you stuff that's producing, it's arousing you, stirring things up, only now you're, you've already formed the intention to be aware of it as it happens. And you lay it to rest, it becomes easier. It's good practice. Okay, let's say fear comes up. If you don't have any confidence that, let's say, awareness uh, is something useful, uh, that it has already served countless people for 2,600 years, uh, let's say you do have it, to whatever degree you have it, then you're in the ballpark, to use a current metaphor. And then uh, it, it, it requires effort, perseverance, because you won't want to watch fear. And remember, it's watching without any judgment. It's just a kind of affectionate attention to the fear. And so it's coming back to the fear, maybe taking a break with the breath or metta or whatever, but it's some stick-to-itiveness 
which we know how to do in other realms, but we have to do it here. We're not so good when it comes to ourselves. Concentration is that strength granted you doing it. The, the mind is stable and can go and calm, even though what's happening may be stirred up, stirrings. And then mindful, you're mindful of the nature of what's happening. You know, if there's fear, there's a knowing of that energy. Not, not the word fear, but en- that energy. And it's the, the energy of seeing. Seeing is not the word mindfulness, it's an energy. Mindfulness is an energy, it's seeing energy, which touches fear energy, it's all energy. And something happens when that happens, and that gives birth to insight and understanding. Oh, perhaps you see it's impermanent and empty nature. You don't grasp so much. You don't identify with it and then go on a suffering journey. Insights can be reflective, where you put to you kind of look at what's going on, and out of that, let go of some things just out of reason and out of the power of logic and intelligence. You see, what's the point of imagining this future that's never going to come? It's stupid. It's a waste of energy. Sometimes just by seeing that, it loses its power. But the deeper insights, of course, are the clear seeing. Now, those are called the five balas, the five powers. They get stronger and stronger, and they work together, and they all feed each other. As one gets stronger, you know, your faith, uh, as your insights deepen, of course, your conviction and your practice deepens. You realize, oh, this stuff really works. Okay. Um, let me f- read this poem again, and then <coughs> tell you what my my significant, the significance of it for me, and I don't know if it's what Rumi intended or what you want. Let the landscape be covered with thorny crust. We have a soft garden in here. The continents, continents blasted, cities and little towns, everything become a scorched, blackened ball. This was hundreds of years ago. The news we hear is full of grief for that future. But the real news inside here is there's no news at all. Uh, This may sound like an escape, but to me it isn't. It's drawing upon something much deeper inside of ourselves to refresh yourself. That's the, the real inner strength is that. The real inner riches is that. And from that place, uh, re-entering the world, your world, not some abstract world, whatever your world is, perhaps a little bit more fit to be able to behave uh, with love and understanding. Okay. Uh, if you've been holding in your, you know, what you need to evacuate, I apologize. Uh, it's okay to leave, it's not rude, but uh, the, uh, what I'd like to do is, while people are leaving, it's okay. Any questions? Some of you have to leave for Thanksgiving tomorrow, we won't go so long, but what's on your mind? Balas, B-A-L-A, okay. Uh, conviction, okay. Perseverance, or like energy, exertion, effort. Uh, concentration, mindfulness, and discernment or insight. Whenever you're really practicing, they're there. You know, these conceptually they can be taken apart. Please. Um, you talk about when you when you read the poem, 
it's a place where the news is there is no news. Yes. And also this analogy that is a self garden. Yes. I, I just want you to elaborate a little bit more about how that is correlated to the ignorant strength. Ignorance? Inner strength. strength. Oh, inner strength. That is inner strength. Because when we think about softness and strength, um, in our minds we tend to think of opposites. No, it's a good question. But uh, I just want to know how from that softness comes that strength. It's not that that from that softness comes the strength. The words are going to be inadequate. Because this is uh, inconceivable. You know, this, the whole point of this place is the thinking mind is not there. Okay. So you can w- use words like silent mind, the cognizing power. There, these are different words that people use. But experientially, I'll do my best. Because it also can sound like you don't, there's no news. You don't give a damn about the other people in the world. It doesn't mean that at all. What I can tell you, what little I know of it, is that when it's tapped, you feel there's no you there. Uh, you is not allowed. No ego is allowed. You can't get it. Because as long as you're trying to, you can't, by definition, the big noisemaker is me. Okay. This is a place of spaciousness and silence. Now, when we hear words like that, then it sounds like it's just a break. It, it's, a, it's, it's extraordinarily rich. Uh, my words are going to be inadequate, but when you tap it, even for a little while, some of how you know what it is, is after it's, first of all, it's very fulfilling to be there. There's no confusion about that. You can feel that you've entered a dimension. It's not a place. It's not here. Uh, You've entered a dimension, which is a dimension that has been uh, unknown to you. It's uh, totally new, and uh, it, it seems to have uh, a certain there's uh, an intelligence there. It's not rational or legal, uh, uh, logical. Uh, let me skip ahead. You find yourself being much more loving and compassionate and wise for having <coughs> tapped this place, not because you've cultivated. Look, take metta, loving kindness. Do you, do you know that practice? Okay, we do, a, for those of you who know, we do a practice here where you cultivate kindness. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, and then you send it to other people. Okay, you're trying to develop a certain quality. Maybe you feel you don't have enough love. And you can do it with compassion, etc. Okay, that's cultivated. That is you trying to improve you. Okay. When you tap this place, there's, the compassion is intrinsic. That's magical. At this point, <clears throat> I definitely join the mystics. I have no idea what's going on. Whether you want to call it God, or awakening, or uh, original nature, or true nature, or <sighs> there are endless words for it. The Holy Spirit, I don't know what to call it. Okay. But uh, it's not vague. And you're not cheated. Now, when you taste that, even for a little while, you, whatever suffering is out there, you see it. When the, when the mind is quiet, the heart can hear. It's not just with these things. Uh, you see much more deeply the suffering. And at first, that can be a problem. 
but the practice can also... The strength you're asking about isn't this kind of strength. See, these images, we're taking worldly images, uh, inner riches. What does that mean? That we have gold piled up in some noise? Uh, inner strength. Well, I have to use something that we respect that's out here to kind of help us grasp that we have a treasure house in here. But even the word treasure house, okay, it's a jewel. Uh, then we, well, so no matter what I say. But uh, the strength is that this place uh, is safe from everything. It doesn't arise and pass away. It has no, it's not vulnerable. But it's not stone. It's, I give up. <laughs> yeah. But, but let's put it this way. You will feel like you're a more stable person. You'll feel like in the midst of pain that's go going around with everyone, that you have some strength. There's something stronger than the event. But you're not uh, obdurate. You're not hardened or callous to the event. You're open to the event. You're sensitive to it. Sensitive, discerning but you're not overrun by that sensitivity, sensitive, vulnerable. It's the best I can do, sorry. Yes? I just wanted to say that I just really appreciate you talking about you know, one consciousness and what is happening in the world arising out of one consciousness, rather than all this duality that I hear that really disturbs me, you know, that we're all good, they're all evil. That's true too. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you see, it's um, the relative that is, but uh, relative reality st exists too. It has to be honored. For example, we're using conventional language right now. And do you understand my words? It's best you can. I understand you. Okay, that's a convention. It's, re it's relative, but we need it. Okay, if somebody is blowing up buildings and killing people, we can't just say, uh, well, from an ultimate point of view, he's just rearranging matter, you know, I mean, there's nothing. Uh, that in, in Dharma language would be attachment to emptiness. It's an intricate kind of balance where it, it's, I mean, in a profound way, it's not good guys and bad guys, of course, because we've helped create what it is that we're now up against. It's in, in Buddhist language, everything is a dependent arising. The Israelis are the way they are because the Palestinians are the way they are. The Palestinians are the way they are because the Israelis are the way they are. But when you hear them, let's say when two of them are there, you, 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 and then the other one, no, it's you, you, you. Uh, well, why don't you, you know, somebody's got to stop, but they don't seem to be able to. Or in Ireland, or, you know, you tell me. Whereas from a profound point of view, the whole, this is a human, the planet's problem. It's not terrorism, Osama bin Laden, the human race has dropped to an incredibly low level where we could really destroy ourselves. I'm not trying to be, you know, those newspapers that sell so much, you know. It's so obvious that that's a possibility or do damage that uh, would be inconceivable. It's not, that's why people are afraid. It's not just paranoia. The stakes are quite high now. Sorry, but that's at least how I see it. Okay, so that you can't lose touch with the texture of just ordinary living, but as you say, uh, if, if you uh, can more and more taste the non-dual, uh, you have a different relationship to the dual altogether. You're free in it. You kind of put another way, you learn how to play in form. You have to be informed. Am I making some sense? Good.
I think there are people who do see, feel that way, and that, that is, uh, for example, take it on an individual level and also on a cultural level. When something challenges us so uh, radically, that's what I meant. The deeper the threat, the greater the possibility for growth. Okay, But you have to recognize it and do something with it. So our culture, the planet, you, for example, this is just my big fat opinion, everything I said tonight, but anyway, the... Um, we keep talking about the global economy, and that's a good thing. Not everyone thinks that, but most global economy, you know, free trade, no, you know, and all that. But we don't have a global consciousness to match the global economy. So we think happiness is in more trade, and then we'll all have what? Better, more objects, better cars, and all. We already have that. We know it's not enough. That's why America is the spiritual capital of the planet, because we've already gone there. We've seen like it's great to have a lot of stuff but it ain't enough. Okay, so um, what needs to happen, if it can, something like this, perhaps, if you, this is an optimistic twist on it, is that out of the desperation of seeing what we've created, but we have to start seeing that we're all in this together. It's not East versus, you know, Islam, you know, all that stuff is the dualism you're talking about. We've all created it together. Okay. Um, we have to begin t to see that, and there is the possibility of, of learning, you know, of movement. So it needn't be hopeless, because sometimes it takes a big blow to wake up. So this could be something where we start to recognize that uh, we've all helped create each other, and we all need each other. And uh, the global consciousness and global economy you see, because otherwise what you have is we're in each other's face, but we don't have a global consciousness. TV and travel, everyone's, and, and goods now, you know, everything, that's circulating. But we don't have a, but it's still the same tribal mind. We all have the same tribal mind. Me, you, every day there's like a new ethnic group. Now I've got to know the Pashtuns, but before that it was Uzbekis, you know. I don't care about California, but I've got to know about the, how the Kazakhstans are doing now, you know. So, like... Everyone's, and each one has its own pride in our culture and our, our dishes and our dances and our outfits and we don't, we, our dignity, I'm sort of like, holy mackerel, you know, sort of like everything's becoming one, just endless proliferation of ethnic groups. Uh, that doesn't have to disappear, but the ferocity with which it's held, how can you have a global uh, consciousness when everyone is so provincial, so tribal? And yet the goods are going around, but we don't have mind. It's an invitation for trouble. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So when you work on yourself, that is sounds utopian, and no doubt it is, you're doing peace work anytime you can become less violent, less judgmental, etc. Have a bigger consciousness. So if you understand that, uh, this is all superficial. Arabs, you know, Jews, Ar that's just uh, like outer garments. 
we're all human. If we can only connect with that, you can still be a Jew and an Arab, you can still be Buddhist and Christian. That's not necessarily suffering unless you grasp onto it. You see, and that's one of the most dangerous, perhaps the most dangerous attachment. In the Buddhist terms, it's one of the hardest things to get free of. Attachment to views and opinions. The terrorists had it. They really felt they had a monopoly on the truth. No doubt they were happy believing they're going to heaven with virgins dancing around and uh, uh, and for them it's true and they're willing to keep, you know, so the, the most dangerous thing if you read history have been religious ideologies. When you get fanaticism under the uh, flag of religion, whew, get out of the way, it's impossible because people feel they have God on their side. Okay, now, so it's not the ethnic groups or the religions per se, that's the problem, but this provincial and and Bring it down to our level. We're doing it with each other in our families. Why can't we live together? Why can't we be at peace with each other? Because we're like the countries are. Me, you know, my ego, you said that. And because that's, so it's the same dynamic. So as you liberate yourself, you're contributing to all of us getting free. Because we make up the world. We are the world. Does that make sense? Okay. Please. Me too. <laughs> This past week, I've been using um, Dita practice to calm jealousy, and I'm trying to... But does everyone know what Mudita practice... Uh, 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 no, it's, it's joy in the, in the uh, good fortune of others. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're using that to balance out what? Calm jealousy. Jealousy, right. And um, I'm trying to learn what resources I have for myself to end a conflict with someone who I have unconditional love towards and trying to figure out what my part can be in ending the conflict or making things better. Mm -hmm. Good question. That's getting right at it. Um, Mudita uh, and metta, they're cultivated practices. You're trying to develop a quality that you feel maybe isn't strong enough. That's useful. But it's, it's not going to uproot jealousy. It will kind of soften jealousy a bit. Let's say jealousy is like this. It's a bit like Adolf's tenderizer. I don't know if that exists anymore. <laughs> it's something you put, used to, I haven't eaten meat in a long time, but I'm vegetarian. I just want to have a nice person, pacifist vegetarian. <laughs> okay. um, so that if you, there's a way of cultivating joy in the good fortune of others, rather than, oh boy, what did I, I should have had that. Okay, and if the jealousy is strong, that kind of balances it a bit, and, and it's a positive thing to do, but it doesn't uproot the jealousy. So sooner or later, you're going to have to look at the jealousy. That's the, that's the power of insight. That's what Vipassana is about. Don't throw the other out there. They're all tools to help you move towards freedom. Okay, now you have certain feelings towards another person. The logic of this practice is, you, is you, as unpleasant as it may be, you have to see those feelings. But you have to, uh, if you can, observe them with a loving eye. Uh, Non-judgmental, it's sort of like being aware of whatever, that, whatever it is. Uh, whatever, what would you call it? Con what would you call it? Um, whatever it is that you don't like about the way you, an attitude you have towards some another person, right? The other way around, my feeling is unconditional love. Right. Okay, you want something from them that they're not prepared to give to you. 
Is that it? Uh, an end to the conflict. <laughs> but uh, what, are you playing a role in the conflict? Yes. Okay. So all you can do is take care of your part. Okay. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens. It's called breaking the circuit. It's in all religions that I know of. You know, the opposite of that is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I go like this, you go like that. Then I kick you and then you hit me over the head with it. Okay, and then we're all toothless and blind, you know. And we wonder, why is everyone so ugly, you know. Um, supposing this person is doing their thing, but, it, but you've examined the part you're doing. But not just thinking, but you actually see it and it gets weaker and falls away. Then they do their thing, but it isn't met in kind. See, that's what Gandhi did. Okay? Gandhi returned violence with love, aggression with love. Not, he wasn't a patsy, obviously. You know, he was firm, and he, uh, okay, you understand. Now, breaking the circuit, if they do their thing and you don't do your thing, uh, it's like they throw a punch and it's just air. That's what I meant about if either the Israelis or the, or the Palestinians, if one of them could just say, I'm going to be bigger, you know, I'm not going to just, when they point their finger, I'm not going to point mine. I'm just going to stop doing, I'm going to remove the settlements unconditionally, no matter, no matter what they do. Or, I'm, do you see what I'm getting at? It gives the possibility for a new dynamic to emerge, no guarantees. Do you see what I'm getting at? Use the practice to help you. You can't live the other person's life for them, but you can change the conditions so that they have a chance to perhaps rise to the occasion too and meet you. Yeah. Please. Uh, <clears throat> a while ago you used the phrase attachment to emptiness. Yes. And, and I have no idea for sure what that means. But <coughs> I was thinking uh, before I heard that about impermanence and for some reason... Um, I've accepted the impermanence of things over a long period of time. As an idea? It has been in, within myself that, you know, things that I loved uh, were torn down and people die and things like that. Um, and I haven't been practicing, you know, a great deal or very long, but over years I've uh, felt that way about impermanence. But I also was wondering uh, if you accept impermanence fairly easily, uh, when people are mourning and people are crying, you know, um, maybe about the same things, that you wonder if there isn't a certain uh, insensitivity or coldness. See, but you're, this is all imaginings on your part, speculation. The, yeah, is, it, but is that attachment to emptiness? Is no. That being attached to no. this, this turning off of... Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, first of all, I'm, uh, let me uh, deepen or add to or amplify what you were saying. Now, no matter how much you feel you've understood impermanence because of losses and so forth, uh, the practice of vipassana would be from moment to moment, let's say when you're sitting, seeing that each breath arises and passes away, each idea in the mind arises and passes away, each mood comes and goes, sounds come and go. The, the body is uncomfortable, then it's comfortable, then you have high energy, then low energy. And you penetrate to a deeper level of understanding of the law of impermanence at work in your own mind-body. And that has transformative power. You're already on your way. You're launched. But you see, so that's, that's part of it. Now, as you go, what that helps you do is let go of your attachment to forms. Okay. Now, some people 
are good at it to begin with or better than others. Some are so attached to their minds that they're going to suffer it tremendously. Whatever the mind churns up, it's true, they grab some, and it's just immense torment. Okay. But as you start to see the, what the, the, the mind is impermanent, it's not just that the people were. One minute you're this, the next minute you're that, and you, it's just, you see what the nature of the mind is. It's not a thing. It's a process full of contradictions and randomness and unpredictability, and it's out of your control. Then it loses its power, and that takes you to a much deeper place that we were talking about, which is here right now. Okay, Emptiness, if I... Attachment to emptiness, let's say, I remember I described that I used to live here? Yeah. Okay. And let's say, which I think there's some truth to, I was attached <coughs> to the form. It was a good place. It protected me. I could, you know, you know, just anyone knows what, I, even if it's a humble little place, it's your own and you can get, do what you want in there and, and be quiet. Okay. Now, if I'm really holding on to that, okay, and then it's taken away from me, then I suffer a lot. And then someone comes along and said, hey, you're attached to that. That's why you're suf- suffering. Uh, it's, uh, look what they're doing. They're tearing it down and they're making it into a meditation hall. And you come back and you look at it. And then, uh, you're right. It, it was nothing. Okay. The attachment to emptiness then is like a kind of disrespect for the form. Uh, the apartment had its value. It's not, uh, if you attach to the emptiness, you're getting attached to the... F- let me use a more uh, an example that's more within all of our range. Flowers. Anyone who loves flowers, probably everyone here or most of us, we love flowers. And you put them, you know, put them in water, and then they're beautiful, and we love to look at them, and their uh, scent, and so forth. And then they start to wither and wilt, and then they die. Right? Maybe the first few times you start sobbing. You know, but typically now, as adults, we see it. Uh, in some Buddhist monasteries, it's a practice to let it go to the point of withering. They don't immediately take it out and put another fresh batch in, because they want you to see it as a teaching. Okay, not overdo it. You know, when it starts to be like that. Okay, so you watch the flowers and you enjoyed them while they were there. Okay, now here are other ways of doing it. If you got uh, totally attached to flowers, uh, then you would suffer immensely every time they withered. That part's clear to you, right? Okay. But supposing you say, they're, they're worthless, I'm never going to have a flower again. They just go and die on you. Uh, because what do they do? They just come up and then they go blah blah and then they're, they're gone. Okay. That would, would be in the direction of attachment to emptiness. It's fine to love the flower in the, uh, as you understand its nature. If you understand its nature, you don't have expectations that have nothing to do with its nature. You want it to last forever, it can't. It's not a mistake. This is the way nature is, or as one of my teachers used to say, it's like looking at a waterfall and saying, praying to God, bowing, I want the water to flow up. It's gonna keep flowing down. That's the nature of water. The nature of flowers is to emerge Blossom, bloom, and then to wilt. Um, you know, you know, you're new to this. Don't get involved with all this emptiness stuff yet. No, but one of the things I was thinking of is uh, things that I have, like a, a village that I, I visited 25 years ago, mm-hmm. 35 years ago. Um, fishing village in the coast of Spain as a kid, and it was beautiful. You know, very picturesque and everything. Ten years later, I was going back as a 
chaperoning some other young people. And it was gone. It was Hertz and Avis and umbrellas on the beach. Everybody that saw that, they were gone. And uh, friends of mine who were, already, who were also there were, you know, really hurt to hear about it. But this is what happened, you know. Economics, not only nature, but economics does this. My town is torn down, you know, where I grew up. And I accept that stuff. And, uh, but I can enjoy the memory of it without being you know, attached or mournful. But, you know, as you get older, you get a lot of good memories and some bad ones. But uh, I can keep that memory without feeling. Uh, okay, then it would Okay, what's your question? Uh, that's well, it was a, this attachment to you know uh, to emptiness. Is it is it okay? Um, that village, excuse me. That oldness and you know uh, when everybody else is. Is it? Look, you see, it's it's. I don't know. It, uh, do you feel coldness? Then it, you would feel cold. Someone wouldn't. I, I'm, it's not. I'm not legislating how you're supposed to feel at the end of this. But let me. The village as you knew it. That was the way it, it, it was empty of an enduring core. Mm -hmm. But one way or another, it had to go through that, just as the flower did. The whole universe, as we know it, the sun is not going to, I don't know, two trillion astrology, uh, astronomers tell us, not the astrologers. <laughs> they probably think they're here for it. Well, anyway, uh, okay, so we know that that's the way things are. But then when it comes to numero uno, me, somehow we go blank. We don't understand. Now, that's fine. You were comfortable with your own your village. Now, it evolved into something else, which is not a totally different, but it's also not the same. Okay. So, in the language of the Buddha, it's just technical language, it, it was empty of an enduring core. It had no autonomous reality. It doesn't mean that it didn't exist or it was a hallucination. It existed as long as certain conditions held it together. The conditions changed just what happened now. There are certain conditions brought this terrorist thing in that came together, more than we can figure out, that brought this to bear. And now there's no World Trade Center. And do you see what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. So emptiness is, um, there's some emptiness sickness is when you get fixated on the nothingness of it all uh, and uh, you disregard the fact that form is here to stay. And that our life is in the midst of forms that change, and the, the problem, the suffering isn't from the changing forms. The suffering is from our fixation. We hold on to things, and then if they change, we have a hard time accepting it, and that's where the pain comes in. Okay. One more, please. Please. You, yeah. Uh, um, I understand the concept of being You understand what? Um, Yes. And um, I'm, I'm a Buddhist myself. I'm mm -hmm. and You're from where? I'm from Thailand. Okay. And um, I've been hearing a lot of things about impermanence, and like I try to like try to think about it when things don't turn out to be the way I expect it to be. But um, sometimes when I try to be happy, I also think of impermanence, like, and I know it's not going to be there with me all the time. So like I don't understand how you can be happy. If you think about impermanence? But no I'm not saying think about impermanence. See, if I can tell you from the point of view of this practice, I mean, you know, I learned my stuff in Thailand, so who am I to tell you anything? It's, you know, it's in your blood. You could, you know, tell me a thing or two, I'm sure. 
there are two kinds of insights I mentioned. Them. One is reflective, and that's a skillful use of thought. And the other is direct seeing. Okay, so you know that things are impermanent, and sometimes, in a way, we talk to ourselves, sort of like, oh, of course, this had a change, and it helps, the, it helps ease things. Okay, but then it's not like what, it, what is being suggested here is we go around, keep thinking impermanent, impermanent, but you can learn that when happiness is there, you can enjoy it, and then when it's gone, it's gone. Let me take a very simple example. Sunset, let's say, is a beautiful sunset. No one's saying you can't enjoy it. You're there, and it's just beautiful. So much in nature is, especially if the mind is clear. Okay? And you're appreciating the sunset, and it goes down, it goes down. Ah, and your heart is all warm, and it's beautiful. No suffering. Then the next day, you come running back to get it again, and it isn't the way it was. Or you start comparing, and Acapulco is better than, than you know. And, uh, you know uh, okay, that's... The first was joy. One way to talk about it was joy. The second was a quest for pleasure, where we try to get it. Now, if you can in- allow yourself to be happy when it's there, knowing that, it, of course, it's not going to last forever. And while you're happy, you're happy. It's just a fact. And then it's gone, and then what's next is what's next. Now, there's a deeper place than happiness, unhappiness, happiness, unhappiness. And that's what, that's what Rumi's point. There's a place that isn't... So- the happiness you're talk about, talking about is subject to vi- vicissitude, change, coming and going, rising and falling, praise and blame, healthy and sick, you know, all those kind of things. What, if you can get comfortable with it, be with it, let it go, be with it, let it go, it takes you to some place, uh, you could call it true happiness, that's deeper than whether you have good fortune or bad fortune. Good fortune must alternate with bad fortune. Good health and bad health praise and blame, wealth and poverty, strength and weakness, you know, all of those. Uh, if you don't believe me, check your life. Is there any of those qualities? Do you have them forever? I don't think so. So but we're talking about something that, that never, anything that arises passes away. What the Buddha is saying is something that never was born, so it can't die. Okay. So it's not that you shouldn't be happy, but when you're happy, enjoy the happiness, and when it's gone, just... Just know the truth of that and be with what's next. That's the practice. Does that make sense? Okay. One more and then really we should... Please. Well, to pick up on the tribalism theme, I've been Good. finding this time to be very interesting around that. And I'm glad that when they called us, you knew about what Buddhists think, that you refused... That they were trying to impose a tribe there. And, and I, my immediate reaction... 911 was feeling like I'm being asked to be part of this tribe, America. Mm-hmm. It's not my tribe. I, I'm not. I want to find who are my people. What is my country? And so I went to peace uh, demonstrations immediately. And people were talking about forgiveness and and all of that. And I thought this is my tribe, you know, some <laughs> level. And now I'm coming as I'm stepping out of that. I'm realizing, you know, that's not right either. There's plenty of people who I can identify with who are not so sure that uh, we should behave peacefully or whatever. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with them, but they're not people I want to write off either. But it's common. See, but you're into writing in and writing off. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. I notice that in myself, but it's not. It's also very much if you go out and demonstrate for peace, I yeah. mean, you will find that you are 
put it or even talk to people about forgiveness, suddenly that costs in a way that... Well, that's what other people do to you. Right. Okay, but I'm but talking about inner, inner stability. Right. Let me, let's play this back. I love America. I honestly do. I had a flag hanging from my window. That probably disappoints you. Sorry. I love it. I served in the military for two years willingly. I was drafted, but I, I didn't bear arms because I didn't believe in it. Uh, but I did believe in serving my country. I love this country. I'm immensely grateful for what it's... Uh, my, my heritage is one of uh, my family. I grew up knowing what my parents went through to get here. I'm from an immig immigrant background. So I know about... And then I've traveled a lot. I love this. That doesn't mean that I don't care about other countries. Just like a person who has self-respect doesn't mean that they're not compassionate. For, they may be more compassionate with someone else because they feel stable. So uh, I think that the art is not even being in a tribe. The tri yes, yes. It, it, when it becomes a, a, an identity, a tightly held, at, over and above. You see, we do it for security. Right. You were looking for a new tribe so you'd feel secure. And everyone's doing that, and then we create insecurity. It backfires. So I'm a Jew. I'm a Palestinian. You know, if you, and then, well, why do you do that? Because I want to belong. These are my people. I go back. I have my history. You know, I know that one well. Okay. Then the Palestinians have their own. God said this is earth. No, God said it. Okay. So the problem isn't in being a Palestinian and loving your culture and the food and all that. Uh, it's just sort of like I'm five, nine and a half. I'm a certain. The problem is we then, uh, it becomes a fixation. And it gets set, it's dualistic. It gets set up over and above whatever opposite you want to make. Peacenik, warmonger, you know. And that's what the mind, until it gets free, is doing. It's an yeah, <coughs> I just, I think, I mean, we're kind of entering a period that feels very McCarthyist and very dualistic where people... I, I don't know, that's just been my experience. Well, you know, you can make whatever analogies you want. I lived, were you alive when the McCarthy thing was happening? I wasn't. I was. But, but I, I'm just saying it just <laughs> feels very different now to speak about forgiveness than it did. Um, let, let me, this, this one is a challenge to all of us. Yeah. I have, uh, because I am, uh, I'm not for uh, violent responses. But in this one, um, the problem with the violence is that it's so conditioned in, in you, all the societies. When something goes wrong, that's all we think of, is we've got to hit back. Okay. We don't think, is there anything else we could do? Now, in terms of this, if you're the head of a country, any country, and someone kills 5,000, let's say, so now they say it's less, it doesn't make the pain less, let's say, of your citizens, uh, do you think, uh, what would Gandhi do? Would he go on a fast? Do you think the terrorists care if he fasts? This is a different kind of, we don't know where the enemy is, it's not bound. It's a, okay, so f to pause and say, you know, I don't know. This one is, uh, what I hope is that all the oxygen isn't taken up by war as the solution, so that there's some oxygen left to try to understand what got us here. Like re-examine our foreign policy, especially in the Middle East. You know, uh, re-examine the impact we have on other people because of the tremendous wealth we have and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not to, to blame America, but to try to understand that this didn't uh, come out of, chi you know, chicken licking, whatever, you know, didn't just drop from the sky. What is that? Chicken? Chicken, chicken little, you know. Uh, these, in the Buddhist scheme is very, you know, it's causes and effect, causes and effect. So wisdom is to try to say, well, how did I contribute to the, these causes, in your case, same as an individual, 
that now have gotten me into enmeshed in here where people hate me so much. Oh, I'm just a total saint and they hate me. Maybe. I mean, some innocent people have been killed because they belong to a certain... But we're talking about inner work. If you want to be free, you can be love America and not be a problem to the world. Unless your love of America is such that it makes everyone else... You know, you're into superior and inferior. You also care more if an American dies than if an Afghani dies, etc., etc. Being in a tribe seems very human. We humans seem to uh, love to be in a tribe, and then we feel secure. The problem is, we uh, the security turns makes us insecure because everyone else is doing it, and then we fight with each other, and it backfires. Are the Israelis better off? Are the Palestinians better off? I doubt it. 50 years or however long it's been going on. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Have a good Thanksgiving. You know, let's pause for one moment. I don't know if you, how you feel. Maybe some of you, personal life or what's happened, uh, disappointment, I don't know. But uh, the Buddhist way is... Here's a, here's a very humble teaching from, from Thailand, from a, a forest teacher. Uh, let's say you get a mango and there's a worm in it. Okay. You can throw the whole mango out, or you can enjoy the rest of the mango. Okay. And it, put it in other terms, uh, it's a good idea during Thanksgiving, uh, whether you don't feel American or you do feel American, is there anything to give thanks for? I think you will find, is there anything right with your life? Is there anything right with America? You may have to do some forgiving, I don't know. Um, so you don't have to throw the whole mango out. I'm sure that no matter how you are feeling about this, you can find some things that are good about yourself, about the world, uh, and you can enjoy the mango. Wherever you are, uh, I hope it's a, a good holiday for you um, and uh, to be continued.